The Orioles' combination of trickery, ferocity, and skill won them three National League pennants during the 1890s. Their rivals, the Boston Bean Eaters, took five. Baltimore and Boston were wildly successful, but the two teams so overwhelmed their competition that baseball crowds dwindled dangerously for those clubs in other cities that never seemed to rise above 11th or 12th place. To many fans, the long season, one of the game's great strengths, now seemed pointless. Then a national depression cut further into profits and the owners slashed players' salaries. Clergymen and the newspapers denounced the rowdyism and scandal that followed the game everywhere. And the owners seemed incapable of doing anything. By the end of the 19th century, the professional game was in trouble. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? How are you, friends? Tim Hanlon here, reporting for duty, your doctor of defunct, your reverend of relocation, whatever you want to call me. It's uh, it's uh, time once again for our favorite little uh, conclave that we like to do each and every week for you here on the big internet podcast uh, extravaganza. We call it Good Seats Still Available. Yes, the curious little podcast, not so little anymore, actually, uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you tremendously for finding us and uh, downloading us, sharing us, streaming us, putting us in your earbuds, whatever you're doing to listen and enjoy, hopefully, this week's episode. Now, stick with me on this one, all right? So that clip uh, sets the tone, and it sounds like, hey, we're going to get into moldy, oldie baseball. Well, a little bit, uh, but kind of backhandedly. And um, here's the entree. So as uh, as you probably can imagine, uh, yours truly gets a ton of uh, great new movies and books and all that kind of stuff uh, in the realm of sports and, and related uh, you know, with a lot of pitches on uh, potential uh, storylines and stuff for future episodes. And and Lord knows it's a it's a narrow uh, focus we have. Right. So we've carved out uh, this little a trench uh, of a niche for ourselves uh, and to the uh, chagrin and to the uh, consternation, I guess, of uh, publicity people in the uh, publishing world uh, out there. Um, you know, we have to say no to a lot more things than we say yes to. Uh, but, you know, we do our best to squint hard and try to get into uh, some really intriguing and and sometimes oft forgotten, but also maybe not even fully known or, or first time discovered uh, little uh, crevices uh, of history. And this was the case when I received a book called From Football to Soccer, The Early History of the Beautiful Game in the United States by Professor Brian Bunk at the uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst, published by the University of Illinois Press. And, you know, on the cover, there's a really, really old picture. I want to say it's from the maybe 19... 19- teens, maybe 1920s, uh, looking very much like sort of the uh, stereotypical uh, ethnic uh, sort of uh, play of the sport, uh, which most people can imagine and understand, even if you're not a soccer fan uh, with any knowledge of soccer, was, you know, largely the predominant manner and reason, frankly, for any kind of professional expression of soccer in this country for a long, long, long time, maybe arguably until maybe uh, the late 1960s, when let's call it the modern version of pro soccer, which we've talked about on a number of different episodes, uh, kind of got going after a um, 
uh, surprisingly successful uh, 1966 World Cup beamed live to the United States uh, television audience for the first time. Um, but uh, yeah, as you can imagine, a book like this is um, uh, you know seemingly very focused on the very earliest uh, vestiges of the sport. And we've kind of hinted at things like the American Soccer League, which I think most soccer historians kind of stopped at, which kind of uh, sort of uh, percolated in the uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, and for decades, frankly, uh, kind of, um, you know, kept the uh, kept the spirit, I guess, of the sport alive, largely through uh, still ethnic lenses, uh, which made a lot made a lot of sense because you had a lot of immigrants and that was the sport that they brought over. But I was amazed to find out as I uh, dug deep into this book, uh, a very interesting little storyline. That's going to be our focus of our conversation this week. We're going to go back to, believe it or not, 1894. And before you roll your eyes and sort of say, oh, you know, I'm out. No, you should stay in because this, as uh, Dr. Bunk has found uh, and uh, uh, gone into great depth with in this book, um, is actually, uh, by from my what I can tell right now as the armchair historian, uh, the beginnings of the professional game in earnest in the United States. I think far earlier than most people, even soccer historians, would have even guessed. And you know, here's the kicker, as the clip sort of hinted at, maybe, sort of. In the 1890s, baseball was uh, undergoing some very interesting things, and it was baseball owners, believe it or not, those very same Boston Bean Eaters owners and Baltimore Orioles owners uh, and Brooklyn Bridegrooms owners, etc., who were behind the founding of a league, a professional league, to play in their stadiums in 1894 called the American League of Professional Football. Yeah, this was soccer financed and publicized and promoted by the owners of baseball teams. Now, by the way, that's that's interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. And it only lasted a year, and there was even a, a, a competitor league. We're going to get into all of that with, with, with uh, Brian Bunk in a few minutes. But it's also the beginnings of uh, what became and has, has been a theme over time. Now more pronounced as, as team owners can be, you know, owners of different uh, teams from different leagues. Um, but over a long time ago, that wasn't sort of the case. But, you know, if you go back to the 1960s with the rise of what, the, you know, what ultimately became the North American Soccer League, remember, friends, there were three, count them, fledgling uh, attempts to launch leagues in 1966 and 67, uh, two of which actually got uh, off the ground. Uh, and of course, in American soccer style, uh, you know, kind of beat each other up and, and sort of uh, enervated the whole process. But you can look into the, into the records there. I mean, there were just about every baseball owner at the time had either a majority or a minority or at least a passing interest in this fledgling soccer thing is maybe another big thing and certainly something to help fill up some dates when maybe our baseball teams weren't in town. Um, but that I, I was shocked, frankly, to sort of see that that idea began in earnest in 1894. And that's what we're going to get into because, it, it, by the way, it, it, it sows so many original seeds of, of many, many themes that we've talked about on this this uh, this little podcast over the years, um, that seem like they're new or or, or modern day uh, uh, issues, challenges, interestingnesses, uh, 
um, but really aren't any really new. Um, in the 1890s, uh, you know, uh, this is very much a baseball story as much as it is a soccer story. And that's what makes this fascinating. And as the clip sort of hinted at, the 1890s was a very interesting transitional time for the National League. It had fought off uh, a players league in rebellion. Uh, it had absorbed that. Um, there was this American association sort of in the background that ultimately uh, kind of went sideways and then kind of reinvigorated itself. And as the, the century turned, 1902-ish, I think it was. I, I'm sorry, I'm not a baseball historian by trade, but the American League came about. Um, by that time, by the end of the decade, all this sort of experimentation and uh, fumfering around of, of this uh, sort of uh, uh, evolution, I guess, of the professional baseball uh, ownership world and a dalliance with professional soccer um, was uh, was uh, really kind of sort of floating all around. And, uh, you know, I, it, we're getting into the reasons why it was attempted, uh, the reasons why um, uh, the owners thought this would be interesting business-wise, uh, culturally. Uh, we'll get into why it uh, died a very quick death and how. Um, but interestingly, also the beginnings of why the idea didn't necessarily die in 1894, but came back again and again and again uh, on a number of different levels, including a persistence uh, for pro soccer, which we now, uh, in theory, enjoy with the 25th year and counting of Major League Soccer and things prior to such, as we've discussed in previous episodes. So that's our long-winded way into, into our conversation that we're going to get into in just a few moments with Dr. Brian Bunk. We're going to talk about the 1894 dual professional leagues led by the uh, baseball owners, American League of Professional Football. Fascinating stuff. Uh, and uh, you will uh, absolutely enjoy uh, this conversation uh, in a few moments time. So please Stay tuned. Let's get a little uh, promotional uh, uh, goodness out of the way. This week, we're going to uh, stick with soccer and our pal Kevin Schultz and his site, extratimevintage.com. Extratimevintage.com. Code for you there is good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. What are you going to find there? You're going to find a lot of uh, interesting soccer team logos uh, from various leagues of the past. Now, not all the way back into the American League of Professional Football, uh, but we certainly see the MISL and the National Professional Soccer League. The NASL has a few teams represented in there. Uh, there are things from the American Soccer League in there, uh, as well as other little leagues here and there. Um, the American Indoor Soccer Association. It's all fascinating. And, and frankly, the, this is a place where some of the more obscure teams and, and logos can be found. And what can you get them on? Well, how about a hoodie, a long sleeve T-shirt, uh, mugs, uh, youth size T-shirts, different colors, uh, men's, women's styles, all of those. Uh, and it's just it, there's probably a team uh, and a league memory there just waiting for you that you uh, probably didn't realize uh, could be and was available uh, in any of those forms. Some really great, uh, don't call them obscure, but fascinatingly so, logos uh, from soccer teams that you just uh, may have missed or or perhaps remember, but uh, needed a little poke to uh, to actually remember. Again, it's extratimevintage.com. The promo code there is good seats and 10% uh, off all of your purchases uh, is there for you. 
uh, when you uh, check there uh, out. Check it out. Yes, that's what he's trying to say early and often. And we appreciate Kevin's uh, sponsorship of the show this week. And uh, we thank you kindly. All right, let's get into our conversation, shall we? Uh, Now, remember, the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, i.e. the National League, was the uh, progenitor of this American League of Professional Football that we're going to get into. We're going to dial it back to 1894 and uh, listen for some names. The Washington Senators, the Philadelphia Phillies, the New York Giants, the Boston Bean Eaters, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Brooklyn Bridegrooms, who ultimately became the Brooklyn Dodgers. All of these teams were part of this league. Fascinating stuff. Let's get into it. Here's our conversation we had with Brian just last week. Please enjoy. When I saw your book come out, um, I obviously wanted to see what of uh, the professional game uh, you kind of uh, uh, went into. And I and I will I want to get into your sort of the background of how you got sort of interested in the topic in the first place. But I guess the... Um, the goal here, I would love to be able to, while it feels and sounds quote unquote moldy oldie, which I know is a little heretical to, to an historian. Right. But, um, <laughs> but, but it's, I, it, to me, it's very, very interesting because the way you lay it out and, and the way I understand sort of these, I guess, really initial true professional, uh, explorations of the sport of soccer in the United States. I mean, it really is, I want to say everything old is new again, but but a lot of the themes and some of the issues of soccer and pro sports generally uh, play out in, admittedly, even the 1894. Um, you know, baseball teams getting involved in soccer, uh, you know, recognizing uh, ethnic groups and as a, a real interest in the sport uh, from folks who have just come to the country and that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know how altogether different, frankly, some of this stuff is from the 1920s of the American Soccer League and the the, the 1960s of, of whatever, what became the NASL. It feels to me like this is almost the beginning of still an ongoing sort of generative story about pro sports and soccer in this country, perhaps to the amazement of many people so far back. I think that's, I think that's right. There are a lot of similarities and a lot of um, details that will continue to play out. And maybe one could argue continue to play out in the history of professional soccer in this country. Um, I mean, there are going to be some significant differences, and I guess we'll talk about those. But you're absolutely right that there are certainly things that the collapse of these two leagues in 1894 were kind of the beginning of a whole series of problems and challenges that would plague professional soccer in this country, um, you know, for decades afterwards. Well, before we get into sort of the, the, the meat and potatoes of all of it, why don't we just sort of step back and, and give me a sense of your professional career and or personal interest that sort of led you to uh, this part of the and probably least known part of the American uh, soccer landscape and soccer journey, because you're, you're truly an historian by trade, correct? Right. I mean, I was trained as a historian of modern Spain, actually. And, um, you know, when I spent time in Europe doing research, that's where I sort of learned to really enjoy and, and became a fan of, of soccer as a, as a sport. Because when I was growing up, um, it wasn't really, I mean, I was around during the uh, NASL years, and uh, although I wasn't really a huge fan, and it wasn't really played in the same way that it is today in in the place where I was growing up in Wisconsin. Um, 
And so, you know, football, American football was kind of the king and basketball was probably a close second. And I had spent some time living in Minneapolis where, of course, hockey uh, is is really big. Uh, but soccer still wasn't really played by kids in the same way that it is today. So I didn't grow up playing the sport. And I kind of only had a vague awareness of the sport until I really started to get interested in European history. And so that's how I kind of came into soccer um, as, a, as a fan or as a, a, you know, someone who appreciates the game. And um, I, so I, I studied Spanish history in graduate school, but, but not sport history. Uh, and I wrote a book uh, about a revolution that happened in 1934, but that was more of a political and cultural history. And then I was kind of looking around for topics um, you know, for my next research project. And I became interested in, um, in boxing. I became interested in the Spanish immigrant community to New York City. And, you know, being a historian, I thought, well, I'll go and find the book that someone has written about Spanish immigrants to New York City. And I found that at that time, um, there was very little research into Spanish immigration to the United States. Now, Admittedly, the numbers were small compared to other groups from Europe, like uh, from Germany or Ireland or Italy, those sorts of places. So it maybe makes a little sense. And so I began to dig in and do research about that community. And I found out uh, that they had their own soccer league in the 1920s, the Spanish-American Soccer League. And I didn't know much about the history of soccer in the United States. And so I thought, well, I'll go find a book on American soccer history from this period, only to discover that there really weren't uh, any books on on the subject. Of course um, not, because uh, as we all know, the professional soccer game didn't start until Major League Soccer in 1996. <laughs> so, of course. Oh, just kidding. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, People think probably, that, right? I mean, you know, these kids yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, it was around that time that... Um, that Roger Alloway's books um, came out or started to come out and Colin Joe's book on the American Soccer League. So there were some kind of the beginnings of, of that research kind of trickling out, um, but there really wasn't a whole lot done. So that kind of made me become interested in the history of soccer. And then gradually, I think as I did more and more research, I gravitated. Uh, and to a certain extent, I still um, and maybe more interested in the in the early kinds of things, maybe before World War II, as opposed to the later stuff. And obviously, the book really only goes up to about 1920. Um, so I really became interested in kind of the earliest, earliest stuff uh, in the 19th century. And and so that kind of culminated in, in the work that went into writing the book. Which is interesting because it... Uh, so you're mentioning some of the previous works, right? So the American Soccer League, I think even, yeah, you know, I would argue most pro soccer fans kind of at least know that that was uh, part of of the background, at least just by a name or, or an appellation, right? Uh, the NASL certainly a little bit more in focus. Certainly, you got some team names that have been reincarnated in in today's Major League Soccer. But I think when you dial it all the way back, I mean, what did you think as you were sort of looking? I guess maybe at this sort of pre-ASL kind of thing, what did you think you were going to find? I, I doubt, seriously, you thought you were going to find not one but two leagues and, and it, it, in in the late 1800s and, and attached to baseball and the ownership of such to boot. Yeah. I mean, there, there was some research. Uh, Steve Holroyd, who I, you've had on the show, I think a couple of times, um, had written maybe one of the first 
um, histories of of this league of, of the of the uh, you know the American League of Professional Football, the 1894 league. Um, so there was a little bit of that, um, but it really um, the other league was virtually unknown because there was some kind of confusion sometimes in the newspaper reports about exactly what league was being talked about, and it didn't help that there were a Philadelphia there was a Philadelphia team in both leagues. Uh, and so there was a little bit of confusion about that, and that wasn't really resolved until um, I had asked Ed Farnsworth, who has also done a lot of uh, interesting research on the on these professional leagues, if he had looked at a particular newspaper because it wasn't available in um, in a digital format. And, and he went and looked at the newspaper, and that's where we really found out for the first time, or confirmed maybe, for the first time that there was this second professional league. So, um, you know, as a historian, it's always exciting when you can kind of find those things or help facilitate. I mean, Ed did the initial research. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I didn't expect, I knew that there was one league. I didn't expect to find two, I guess. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's let's get into it. Let's let's so let's dial it back. 1894. And we, we've had a number of conversations about some of the earliest days of uh, baseball in this country, right? Very formative, uh, you know, the, the beginnings of, well, I, the, you know, t- take us back, right? The National League, as we know it today, was very much around. Uh, there was not yet the American League. That didn't come until the turn of the century. But there was this American Association, which uh, by many historians counts were was essentially becoming a viable, at least of enough of a challenge and a different sort of presentation of of this still formative professional version of baseball. Um, but so tell us, I guess, around that time, as baseball itself was still kind of getting its professional sea legs, how does even the soccer come into the mix and as, a, as a, itself a professional league? Because it would seem like this baseball thing was plenty to keep people busy with what, what was becoming a pretty popular pastime, especially from the amateur years prior. Yeah, I mean, the National League had been, as you said, kind of struggling and and um, competing against these various other leagues, including the American Association. Um, but I think it was by 1891, those leagues had had dissolved and the National League had had sort of emerged as the only uh, major professional baseball league. And I think, as I write about in the book, I think once they cleared the books, the debt that was caused by the the competition for players uh, and and other debt you know debts when they um, bought the 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 franchises and and so forth from the American Association um, by 1893 the end of 1893 going into the 1894 season they were kind of in the best position they had been in maybe in in decades in terms of their financial health in terms of their position as kind of the um, the undisputed uh, you know, top American professional baseball league. And so I guess I would, would argue that maybe they thought this was an opportunity. This was the best time that they had, had maybe found in, in a, in quite some time to, to maybe try to launch something else. And I mean, I think there was talk uh, over the, you know, a few years before 1894 about creating another major professional team um, sport league, uh, because I mean, boxing was huge, and horse racing, and there were some other sports, but there really wasn't another significant um, 
professional team sport. You know, basketball was still in its infancy. Um, you know, college football was a huge, uh, huge thing, but that was amateur and, and connected to intercollegiate athletics. You know, issues that still are very pertinent today were, were a part of that discussion, even in the 1890s. So this, I think soccer seemed like it could be uh, an opportunity for them to add another kind of professional team sport to their to their roster, as it were. And then that would allow them to use uh, to fill stadiums to maybe have the baseball players uh, play uh, year round. You know, they would play soccer for six months and then play baseball for six months. So it would be a way of generating additional revenue, additional profit for these baseball owners. And at the same time, they would retain control over major professional team sports uh, in, in the United States. Okay, so this is interesting. So let, let me unpack that for a second. So a couple of sort of things there. Number one, you're kind of describing, uh, I guess, a year-round kind of thing. And I'm assuming implied in that is uh, the, uh, the, the, I guess, the, uh, the, the programming of content, shall we say, for, for their various stadiums and locations, right? So that beyond just a baseball season, there could be I'm guessing probably with not much too, too much overlap, a soccer season to kind of keep the building sort of operating closer to year round. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I mean, they they did obviously host um, college football games in the college football season, but that ran, you know, from September to January or something like that. So they had, you know, January till March or April or whenever the baseball season officially um you know, began, they needed to, to fill those, or they wanted to, I think, to fill the stadiums. And I think also they, they felt like they could schedule soccer games during the week, maybe uh, in the same way that they had baseball games at different days, you know, not just on the weekends. And so this was an opportunity to not only fill that downtime around the, in the early part of the year, but also to to fill the downtime in the middle of a week or early part of a week or something when, uh, I mean, a stadium might be booked for a, a college football game on a Saturday. It might be booked a, a couple of days on a weekend for some sort of, um, you know, horse show or some other kind of spectacular, that kind of a thing. But those were not going to be uh, weekly, everyday, reliable content, uh, reliable revenue generators that they could have. I guess that's what we would say today, right? A revenue stream that they could count on during the week and then during the time when college football wasn't playing on weekends and baseball uh, hadn't yet started. Well, you, another thing that, that also struck me, what you just said, was that this sort of attempt or some ideal of having I don't know, I guess what the Europeans would sort of know to call a sporting club, sort of a brand that would encompass multiple sports, not just one professional sport. Um, you know, uh, like the uh, the ACs of the world, uh, as they sort of shortened in, in European terms. Uh, and, and do I have this right? And did I hear you correctly with perhaps part of that assumption being that the players might even play more than one sport, in this case, both baseball and soccer? Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a challenge in in one sense because we don't have a lot of institutional records. Um, most of the information that we've been able to glean about these leagues comes from newspaper reports, and those can be 
unreliable. They are often, um, you know, they often assume knowledge that maybe people at the time had, but we don't have. So we have to kind of draw some conclusions and, and make some assumptions. And uh, I don't know, you know, we don't have any evidence really to suggest that the baseball owners were moving in the direction that you, uh, that you're suggesting. It, it's certainly possible. I, I looked through the, the catalog of the baseball hall of fame to see if, there might be any records from some of these clubs or from some of these individuals who own the clubs about what their intentions were, correspondence. And I, I couldn't find anything. If any of your listeners have any ideas, that would be great. So we don't really have a good window into exactly what they were thinking about, um, except for we know based on their actions um, before the league and then after the league that they were interested in in money and in revenue and in um you know, much like I suppose many franchise own owners today, keeping costs low in terms of player salaries and keeping revenue high and that, you know, revenue can come from ticket sales. It can come from all sorts of other uh, revenue streams. And I think that's what the baseball owners were doing. Uh, and having them play more than one sport was a way of keeping salaries down while increasing revenue um, without spending more money or investing more money in in a whole nother roster of players well sure it also um uh, frankly to me smacks also of, of probably wanting to uh attract fans perhaps who were uh, either just becoming interested in this professional baseball thing or uh, my guess is uh, maybe even a whole nother swath of fan who was not potential particularly interested in baseball was not sort of flocking to it and i'm guessing and i'm projecting here so you're the official historian so you tell me uh, the and i want to sort of just generally lump it as the quote-unquote immigrant crowd but but folks from you know recently uh arrived in the united states right who you know baseball was not even close to being the quote-unquote national pastime we know it to be today um, and I would imagine you had a whole sort of raft of folk, uh, especially working class folk who, you know, uh, brought with them their their memories and or desires to continue to at least find an outlet for things that they remember from their homelands. And I'm I'm guessing that soccer was probably a little closer to that than for their leisure dollar, so to speak, than than a baseball game would be. Mm -hmm. I do think that they did want to kind of capture, I mean, again, I'm putting it in very modern terms, but I think I think they did want to try to capture um, consumer dollars that maybe they they wouldn't, um, you know, with baseball or, or during the baseball season or something like that. So I think they were trying to expand the audience for professional team sports. And that's part of the reason why they felt like they might be able to have weekend game or weekday games as opposed to just exclusively games on the weekends. It was a way of capturing those dollars that they might not otherwise be able to do. Um, so I do think that that was definitely part of it was trying to expand an audience. Um, I, I, I wonder, I mean, it's one thing that I think it's easy to dismiss these leagues, especially the, the American League of Professional Football, because it was such a debacle and it closed down so quickly. And for so long, professional soccer was, um, you know, um, maybe not uh, as as um, big of a sport. I mean, we have the 1920s, but then again, it, then it takes until the 1970s and and so forth. Um, 
So I think it's easy to kind of dismiss them, but in some ways they were ahead of their time. And I, I think it may be in two ways. One is that, uh, you know, it was in the 1920s that the NFL starts. And so there was clearly, at least by that point, an audience for a, a team sport, um, you know, during the winter months or during the fall or something like that. So they kind of anticipated the notion that a professional football league would be successful, even if they were kind of ahead of the game by a couple of decades. Um, the other thing, though, I think you're right about that, that the 1920s and and uh, and the American Soccer League in particular did definitely appeal to uh, different ethnic groups uh, and, and American soccer in general kind of had that reputation uh, after the demise of the of the ASL in the, in the late 1920s. Um, and so soccer became associated with all these different ethnic groups. But I mean, I don't know how much of that they would have, um, whether that would have been enough of a motivation because, I mean, soccer still was not the sport that we think of today in uh, in much of Europe or in South America in 1894 as it is as it is today. Um, and so, I mean, soccer had been played in places like Spain, you know, much earlier, but it wasn't yet quite the level, you know, the dominant sport in the in the sense that it is today. So it, it could be that they were trying to expand the audience. I'm just not sure necessarily that they were conceiving of that audience as being particular um, ethnic groups that that maybe weren't necessarily attracted to baseball. So I think you're right. They were ahead of the game in, in various ways. I'm just not sure how conscious that decision was. No, that, 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 that makes sense. And, and it also augurs more for your sort of, uh, my term, umbrella sort of sporting kind of uh, approach where baseball was sort of the, the lead story, but perhaps could be, you know, branched out into other sports. I mean, look, the chapter that we're talking about, your chapter five from, uh, your book is the the book is titled "From Football to Soccer," right? And I I I I'm guessing, and maybe you can kind of uh, illuminate for the audience a bit that this is also a bit of a form evolution of what "quote unquote" soccer is, right? Because and or football, right? Clearly, on the college level, it was starting or had started, right? The uh, you know, the early college game, but, but, you know, we all know from our history books of, of college football, right. That even that sort of traditional American gridiron version of the game certainly was not nearly what it looks like today. Right. It, it had elements of what we know today as soccer. It had elements of what we know today as uh, rugby and, or now American football. Right. So I guess the question in there is 1894 having you putting a sort of uh, uh, to task here to sort of really kind of put it in a better framework. What is this sport at this time? It it certainly sounds like it wasn't quote unquote soccer as we kind of know it today. It feels maybe more it was part of the formation of something other than baseball for that matter. Um, I mean, right. The, the book, I guess, is called From Football to Soccer because there was this a whole bunch of different games that were played all over the country by um, boys and young men, at least initially, then taken up by uh, schools and colleges and, and even women sometimes uh, played these games. And they didn't necessarily have a set of hard and fast rules and they might vary from place to place to place. And, and that's what happens with the colleges and the universities where 
you know, Yale develops its kind of own form of, of football and Harvard does the same and, um, and Princeton has its version. And, and right, they, they do contain different elements of what we would today know as soccer and rugby and American football. But the, you know, the emphasis on carrying the ball or kicking the ball or how often or what are the conditions under which you can catch the ball or can you run with the ball, all of that was, was kind of up for, um, up for debate or up for, um, you know, could change over time. Um, and so it's only really in 1863 when the association rules are codified and written down and then rugby a little bit later. And then that's when you begin to see the American colleges are also starting to finally write down their own rules. And as you said, they're related to modern games. Um, they're related to the association rules developed in England. They're related to the rugby rules, but they're they're not similar to what we would know today. I think by the time we get to 1894, it's more recognizable as soccer, for sure. Um, you know, the, the rules had been codified. You have professional association football in England and in Scotland. Um, and so I think it probably looked more like professional soccer looks today than um, college football would look like college football does today, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. Um, I, but it, yeah, it's, it's definitely clear that the uh, the form of it, right, is, uh, I, you know, it, look, we also have to remember, too, that baseball uh, was uh, still in its, uh, you know, it certainly was professional, but it's still formative, right? I mean, I mean, a lot of the rules were kind of baked in, but, you know, it still evolved as a game as well in itself, right? The, the pro game in the United States of baseball, right, had only been you know, uh, maybe a decade or two old, right, having been largely an amateur thing. And there was a whole debate about whether professionalism was good for the sport in the first place. So that's also a part of the dynamic here, right? Here's yet another attempt at a professional league when the very idea of professionalism was still not sort of fully settled as being a noble enterprise uh, as baseball had maybe turned the corner on, but it, it certainly wasn't an easy path for sure. Exactly. I mean, baseball for a long time, or professional baseball, was kind of plagued with this reputation as being sort of a disreputable, dis slightly disreputable, uh, you know, uh, occupation for sure. And that, um, you know, players were uh, infamous for being drunk, uh, uh, you know, on the field and off the field, for being violent, for it being kind of a rough sport and not necessarily one that had a lot of um, a lot of status attached to it. And I think one of the reason why um, a lot of the soccer communities in the United States in the 1880s and, and 1890s, when they really start to begin to grow, um, they really did kind of cling to this notion of amateurism. And, and part of that is a holdover from um, from the attitudes in England and, and Scotland uh, against professionalism and that, um, you know, soccer was this kind of noble athletic pursuit for gentlemen. Um, and, and so part, that was kind of ingrained into many, if not most of the soccer communities in the, in the United States. And so I think that that may be another reason why the baseball owners, you know, they were less attached to that or maybe not attached at all to that. I mean, they ran professional sports franchises. So clearly they didn't have a problem with that. They didn't feel like they could take um, that away from college football, which also had that kind of, uh, I think, um, 
I quote in the book, uh, one of the baseball managers talking about there's a patina of, you know, amateurism around college football. And, and they weren't willing to, to get rid of that or to challenge that. Um, but soccer, I mean, it was professionalized in, in England and in Scotland by this point. And I think they were a lot less reluctant to do that, whereas the soccer community itself, uh, the American Football Association and other local communities, they didn't want to take that next step, which is maybe why they didn't make moves towards creating a professional league of their own, um, except for, of course, the association that I guess we'll talk about a little bit. Um, so I think that's that kind of goes into why it was baseball owners who did it and and not necessarily people from within the soccer community. So give, give us a sense then of how this becomes even agenda and it, a, excuse me, an agenda item, he says, not so easily, for these National League owners at all, right? Uh, the idea of, of launching something different uh, off the backs of their current operations, why a soccer versus, say, something else? Uh, maybe this was the beginning of something bigger, as you maybe hinted at earlier, multi-sport. But, I mean, how does 1893-ish come about as a conversation piece around, hey, let's let's set up a, a soccer league as well in addition to our still-fledgling professional baseball endeavors? Well, I think it did. It had to do with the fact that they were probably hearing or, you know, getting word that there were discussions about forming some sort of professional football league and that there had been instances, uh, you know, within a couple of years. Uh, I think 1892 is the first documented professional football player playing in what was then, you know, intercollegiate football. Uh, so it was kind of in the background there bubbling up. And I think the baseball owners felt like they did not want, if there was going to be another professional team sport, they wanted in on it and they wanted to be able to control it. Because as we talked about earlier, they had these stadiums already and they maybe didn't want people um, to form a professional team sports league that would maybe somehow be able to compete ultimately with, with the national league um, in, in terms of baseball. And I, and I think they did cast around and they talked about, can we use the intercollegiate rules of football? And, and that didn't seem to work. Can we use rugby rules? And that didn't seem to work. And so I think they hit on association football because there was this immigrant community. There were these communities in New York and Brooklyn and, and Philadelphia and, and places like Fall River and Pawtucket who were playing soccer and they could easily, you know, point to the success of the football league in England and say, look at these people are attracting tens of thousands of people to these big matches. If we can get even a tenth of that kind of a crowd, I mean, we'll be we'll be, you know, making money hand over fist. So I think it was a combination of all of those things, the the fact that they were in a financially um you know, a comfortable position, the fact that there was talk about forming some sort of um, professional uh, team sport league for the winter months. Maybe there weren't other great options, right? Intercollegiate football, no. Basketball, no. I mean, hockey, no, right? I mean, the big American sports today, none of those except for football was really a viable option. Um, so I think, I think, like I said, the impact of the crowds in England, I mean, people would report, newspapers would regularly report on big matches in England and talk about the crowds there and the success of the professional leagues there. And so I think that also had an impact on their 
decision and why they might have chosen soccer. That's fascinating to me and equally fascinating. And I think this is really maybe what sort of brings this to, I guess, the more mainstream sports fan, perhaps. Um, the American League of Professional Football, and I want to get to the to its competitor, too, which was new groundbreaking stuff that you discovered besides uh, there was another league sort of floating around around this time as well. Again, sounding like a chase for money, for sure. Um, but circa 1890, I mean, talk about 1894, um, I, I am just, just, I'm gobsmacked by the fact that uh, six of the then, I think, 12 National League teams at the time stood up or sponsored or some combination thereof teams in this professional soccer league known as the American League of Professional Football, including five teams whose lineages still exist today, right? The LA Dodgers via the Brooklyn Bridegrooms, um, the Baltimore Orioles partially by name. I guess that's not really a, con a consecutive thing because there were a number of Orioles teams, but uh, the Boston Bean Eaters, which are known t today by direct lineage as the Atlanta Braves, um, the New York Giants, uh, which, uh, you know, exists in San Francisco today by a very long way away. And then the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, I, the, I think many hardened and wizened and historically uh, emboldened uh, uh, baseball fans <laughs> would have a hard time believing that those teams were behind essentially the first professional endeavor in soccer in this country. I, 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 I didn't know that. And I'm a huge soccer fan and have been for some time. I didn't know that until recently until your book came out and it scratched sort of the surface of, I, it's hard to believe, right? Ironic uh, on a lot of different levels. Uh, prescient in some respects, I guess, if you really take a long, long view of it. Um, I'm just wondering how it sort of, got affected like how they how they made this sort of a viable opportunity did they co-promote with their baseball games how do they get the the sort of word out how do they how do they approach the fields and 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 try to set up the uh, the stadiums appropriately and that kind of stuff the logistics of it seem even more intriguing it does i mean i i think one of the the things that they did is even though oftentimes the baseball managers or the managers of the baseball teams were listed as the official managers of the soccer teams, I think what really happened was that they would find someone who had roots in a particular and, and contacts and connections in a, in, a, in a particular soccer community. And then they would bring that person on board, oftentimes as a player, but also as a coach and as a, probably as a recruiter as well to, to get uh, people to sign. And so you do see a case like, for instance, in Baltimore where um, – uh, A.W. Stewart is brought on board and he had long roots in the Detroit um, community there and he brought along all sorts of players from Detroit uh, and then Baltimore, of course, imported some of these English players. And But I think he effectively ran, uh, functioned as both a, a coach, a player, a team captain, and, and maybe even in a sense, uh, maybe it's a stretch to say something of a general manager like we would think of today. So I think that was... They definitely relied on on those sorts of things. The Brooklyn team, for instance, had Dennis Shea, who was a experienced goalkeeper, had had gone 
to uh, Great Britain in 1891 with the U.S.-Canadian team and, and, and did this long tour. So he had important connections in Fall River and in other areas, and, and they essentially brought along a lot of players who had already played together on, on different teams in Fall River or Pawtucket or Detroit uh, or, or some of you know, Philadelphia or Trenton. Uh, so um, they did, I think, rely on soccer people to to fill the rosters, to to do with the whatever training and and that sort of thing that that they had. And then, I mean, they did have, you know, they already had the facilities uh, in the baseball stadiums. It's unclear to me, um, you know, how and how much promotion they did. I don't. They might put ads in the newspapers occasionally, but I don't. I don't know beyond that. Again, it's really a lack of sources. It, it lasted for so short of a time that we don't have, I mean, as far as I know, I've never seen a, a poster or any kind of advertisement. I've never seen a photograph from any of these games or any of these teams, except for those that were uh, printed in the newspapers, not as photographs, but as, um, you know, prints probably based on photographs. So um, we don't, as far as the the promotion, you know, we could make guesses that they were probably working on in similar ways to to the the way that soccer communities had been doing it up to that point. But um, again, our lack of source material means that we kind of have to to make a leap uh, and and to sort of um, I wouldn't say guess, make informed uh, guesses about how how that all functioned. So, so where did you find then the 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 the, the source material? I guess to kind of sort of uh, hang your hat on, I guess the existence uh, of this. I, I'm guessing that these teams, these baseball teams, right, was probably sort of somewhere in some murky little corners of their histories that it sort of uh, became evident. I don't. I mean, I guess I haven't. I I I haven't read too much into the individual team histories. I have to admit, um, I did look at histories of baseball um, in, during this period, but they don't necessarily mention it because I think it was sort of a blip on the radar, and there was more um, concern and more attention given to the possibility of a new baseball league, which emerged right around the same time that the soccer league was also launching. And so I think that has tended to draw the attention of um, both the baseball owners at the time and then, and then subsequent histories. A lot of this really plays out in the newspapers. I mean, they, they, um, you know, ha put out a press statement uh, announcing the formation of the league in February, 1894. And then the press uh, publishes stories about the games and, and match reports, we would call them today, uh, there are other reports, uh, particularly in Fall River. Fall River was probably the most um, soccer mad city in the United States in the 1890s. And so the newspapers there spent a great deal of time covering this in part because so many of the players would have been familiar to, to Fall River newspaper readers. Um, and I think there were some people in Fall River who were a little peeved that they were not given an opportunity to have a team. So um, like I said, a lot of this information comes from the newspapers, and that's why it was so hard to to really find out about the existence of the American Association of Professional Football, because sometimes the reports are incomplete, or sometimes they confuse one of the teams with the other, and and that sort of thing. So yeah, there, it's it really can be a challenge in piecing together a lot of the 
the nitty gritty details about how these leagues functioned. And as I said, I searched for correspondence or other kinds of materials. And I, uh, you know, by the time I, I had to, to complete the, the book, uh, I hadn't found anything. Okay. Well now you're bringing up sort of the, the other sort of competitive league uh, in all of this. So why don't we back into that part of the story too? Um, we've been sort of circling to start with around this American league of professional football, which was an, uh, an effort by uh, these National League baseball owners uh, to get a league off the ground. But but you're bringing to, to bear something uh, completely uh, as a rival league, this American Association of Professional Football. Um, I, so, I, number one, what is and was that? Where, where did sort of that come from? And do I am I correct in assuming that this fledgling – uh, I guess, governing body of the sport at it, as it was finding its way into the world. This American Football Association from about a decade earlier had maybe something to do with it. Mm-hmm. The American Association of Professional Football was also launched in the fall of 1894, and it does seem as though it was created as a deliberate attempt to um, I don't know if sabotage might be too long or too strong of a word, but but certainly compete with and contend with the American League of Professional Football. And it seems it was the, the brainchild of a of a guy named Clement Beecroft, who had been uh, involved in the soccer scene in Philadelphia and had played a key role in launching the first uh, soccer league in that city. He had some close connections with uh, the folks at the American Football Association, which, as you said, uh, kind of styled itself as the national governing body, but it was really limited to the East Coast, uh, the area of Philadelphia, northern New Jersey, and up into New England. Um, and they had started the American Cup competition in 1885, and that was um, seen, I think, as a kind of de facto national championship. And so they were very protective of that competition. And I think in many ways, the AFA felt like this new uh, professional league was going to um, challenge the primacy of the American Cup as kind of being the, the championships of the United States, so to speak. Um, it's, it's unclear what if there was any kind of official relationship between the AFA and the American Association of Professional Football. I know Beecroft would have known um, people within the association. Some of the the officers associated with the with the clubs in that league also would would later go on to hold important leadership positions in the AFA. So clearly, there was some personnel overlap there. But uh, again, we don't really have the kind of documentation that would allow us to make um, any kind of really strong connections between the two organizations, the the records or the institutional records, the archive of the American Football Association uh, is is lost or, you know, maybe it exists somewhere. Hopefully it exists somewhere in someone's basement. So we again, we we don't have the kinds of institutional records that we would like to have. And so we have to kind of piece things together from newspaper reports, from um, from kind of how it was reported at the time and then 
kind of events subsequent to that. So, but it does seem it, it clear that it was designed to compete with the American League of Professional Football. Yeah, and 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 you say in the book uh, that the the uh, uh, the association, the American Association of Professional Football, had uh, uh, just four clubs, but they were clearly went for the jugular geographically, right? Philadelphia, which also had a team in this uh, American League uh, in the form of the Phillies, uh, Trenton, Patterson, and Newark, right? And um, you even make some allusions to the fact that maybe the Newark team was really actually uh, an amateur team uh, that it had uh, uh, some success in Kearney, which we all know is you know, probably one of the longest uh, rooted uh, historical sort of um, – um, you know, tributaries, I guess, to the sport uh, sports history in this country, right? Um, so uh, it, it's interesting, though, because you wonder how that motivation comes about, right? And and how a, a, a you know a um, uh, a league, a challenger league, if you will, would would sort of be able to even stand up against, you know, I don't know where, where was Beecroft sort of coming from, given the fact that he was essentially trying to ring lead a challenge to what was really the only professional sports league in this country in the, in the form of the national league. I mean, did he think he even had a chance, right? Or was some other stuff going on behind the scenes? Maybe he was getting supported somehow, or was this just a, Hey, you know, we'll just, we'll just try to do it better and maybe do it in closer backyards. Maybe than this national league is trying to do. They definitely felt like they could do it better. Um, I mean, they felt like they were, coming from a soccer community and that they knew the sport and they knew how to organize the sport. And they criticized the American League of Professional Football for thinking that they could have games on on weeknights, for instance, that uh, even in the in the um, in the football league in England, they played on weekends. They didn't have um, weekday games uh, in, in England. So they they chided the American League of Professional Football for not knowing that kind of stuff. They also felt like too many games in a week would be too hard on the players. Uh, and again, they chalked that up to uh, to sort of the, the ignorance that the baseball uh, owners had about how the sport of soccer actually functioned on the ground. So I do think that they had maybe a sense that they were more familiar with the sport. I also think that they had on some level the the support, whatever that might have meant of the AFA. Um, they did plan on having a team in New York and Brooklyn, which, um, you know, would have also directly competed with the American League of Professional Football. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those unanswered questions about exactly what were their motivations? Were they just trying to sort of be a thorn in the side? The The way that the American associations sort of collapsed or just almost like dissipated once the American League of Professional Football uh, canceled its uh, season uh, really does kind of reinforce to my mind the idea that it was designed simply to be kind of a a competitor and a thorn and not necessarily conceived of as a as a viable long-term project but as I say I don't I don't have any direct evidence for that but given all of the the what we do know that that I think is a reasonable um, assumption. There, there also was a, an overall lack of competitive balance in the American Association, and the the team from Philadelphia was just simply so much better than the other clubs that um, it makes you wonder how 
viable. That would have been long term uh, anyway. So you're describing two leagues that were essentially playing in the fall. Do I have that right in terms of the, the calendar? Their plans were um, this. Essentially, their plans were to play from September to December. And then the American Association had talked about also having a spring league. Um, and I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not. I, I think eventually the American League of Professional Football uh, was also going to have a spring schedule because, as I was uh, just talking about earlier, that they wanted once the turn of the new year happened, the college football season was over. And then, then they could hold, you know, then you would have more open dates to, to presumably fit in uh, soccer league matches. So they were planning um, a fall season and then likely a spring season as well. How would you describe each league's uh, based on what you're able to uncover? And you, you do have some uh, fascinating little tidbits. Uh, in the, they're hardly tidbits. These are all sort of factually uh, strung uh, uh, storylines here. Um would you call either league a quote unquote success or relatively which one did better in quotes? Um, I think the American League of Professional Football was probably a was probably a better league in um, in that the facilities were were professional facilities, uh, even though they were baseball essentially. Right. Focused. Yeah, but they were. They were say, I mean, the uh, the polo grounds had uh, capacity of you know tens of thousands of people. They were major league stadiums for 1894. Um, you know, certainly not like they are today, but they were as good as it got in terms of professional st- or sporting stadiums. I guess um, I think the competitive balance was better in the American League, and and the quality of the players. A lot of probably. If we could classify the best players in the United States at that time, they were more likely to be playing in the American League than they were in the American Association. Um, it's really difficult to judge player quality. Um, some of the English players that that were brought over to play for Baltimore um, after the league fell apart, they went back to England and they never really, even before, even though they played for clubs, the, the club that would eventually become Manchester City, for instance, they were never star players. They never um, were like what we would call first team regulars today. Uh, and yet they were seen as among the best players in the league when they came over to the United States. And then once they went back to England, um, they really never had much of a career in professional football after that, whether that was because they were sort of blacklisted because of their um, willingness to, to, to jump to the American League or whether it was just simply they, they were not good enough to hold down a regular first team position on an, on an English, professional English club. Um, one of those players likened the quality or the level of play in the American League of professional football as being on the equivalent of a, of a kind of regional league in England. So not even like you know, not approaching the quality of the football league or, you know, high level, top level professional football in England. Now, that could be sour grapes. It could be uh, an early example of, um, you know, non-American uh, soccer people sort of looking their, down their nose at American soccer, uh, which is a common theme. So we don't really know. Um, he was giving that comment to a to an English newspaper. So he could have been playing up 
a little bit to the audience there. But um, so I would say the American League of Professional Football was probably more professionally run, had a higher quality of player um, and a more competitive league overall. But I'm guessing that was to the chagrin of this American Football Association. Again, sort of this, uh, I guess, early-ish kind of version of what is now, I guess, U.S. Soccer, United States Soccer Federation, or, or the beginnings of sort of the overlords, if you will, of the sport. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I sort of asked it before, but maybe I'll ask it more directly here. I mean, did the American Football Association, the AFA, this governing body, so to speak, uh, try to kind of muddy up the works uh, either against the American League or perhaps in uh, behind and supporting the American Association, because it seems to me, if I if I read some of your your, your notes correctly, uh, the AFA was trying to kind of uh, cast a pall on the uh, the players in the American League, almost to the point of either banning or preventing them. Hauntingly similar <laughs> to the bizarre world of 1967, years later, right, with the NPSL versus the United Soccer Association, and one being, quote-unquote, officially sanctioned by U.S. Soccer slash FIFA at the time, mm-hmm. right, and one being sort of a, a group of outlaws. It sounds like the AFA was kind of trying to make the a, the American League of Professional Football, uh, backed by these National League owners, kind of an outlaw, like unofficial or unsanctioned uh, version of soccer. Yeah, I mean, I think that w- one of the things that the baseball owners uh, – both loathed and feared was a rival league that would compete um, to, for players, uh, rate, you know, pushing up costs, and also would challenge their their monopoly over baseball in a particular city. And I think from the perspective of the AFA, and again, um, uh, we don't, because we don't have the records, we can't 100% say for sure what was going on in the minds of the AFA officials. But from uh, I would argue that they felt like the baseball owners were doing exactly that to them, that they were coming into Philadelphia. They were coming into, uh, you know, New York and Brooklyn and 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 taking players from Fall River and Pawtucket in these areas uh, and challenging their their monopoly over this competition that they viewed as the most important uh, soccer competition in the United States. And so I think they were they were angry that the baseball owners were doing to them exactly what the baseball owners uh, hated when it was uh, when it was done to the, to them, uh, and so I think that they felt like the the American Cup competition would would suffer if these players were competing in a professional league and not competing in in the American Cup because, as I said, a lot of these players, especially from Fall River, came from clubs that had won the American Cup. Uh, Fall River clubs. Uh, had had entered into a, a period of dominance in the eighteen um, late eighteen eighties eighteen nineties when they were you know they were winning it every year with Pawtucket also thrown in there uh, at, at a, a couple of occasions but so I think that yeah they they felt as though the baseball owners were encroaching on their territory and that it would diminish their competition. How did both leagues, how were they received from fans and from the press? I mean, it's clear that not a lot of fans turned out for these games, although there were, it looks, looks like there were a couple of blips of sizable crowds, but certainly nothing so approaching, you know, sort of the average baseball attendance. Right. I mean, 
it, there didn't seem to be any kind of confirmed crowds of, uh, you know, well, maybe only a handful where they got a thousand people or more. Uh, and in some cases, there were uh, really laughable numbers, I mean, of only a few dozen or a few hundred people at some of these games. So if we, um, you know, if we look at it from the sense of people paying or, or uh, you know, showing their support with their hard-earned dollars or a quarter, which was the admission price at the time, uh, there clearly wasn't a lot of public support for these leagues. The newspapers, the the coverage was um, inconsistent, I would say. And when compared to, say, if you, if you go through and you look through the sports pages at this time, there might be a small paragraph reporting on the scores. Uh, in some newspapers, in some markets, uh, Philadelphia or Fall River, I mentioned before, there might be longer stories that include full match reports and lineups and, and really uh, intelligent discussions of tactics, uh, for, for instance. But that was definitely not the norm. I think in, in even some of the bigger markets like New York City, you don't generally get a lot of coverage uh, of these teams and certainly not on the level of um, – you know, baseball or boxing or some of these other or, or college football, for that matter, uh, which was going on at the same time. And I, I think that was one of the a contributing factor. I don't think it was a major factor, but I think that was a contributing factor in why these leagues failed to take off was that the press was kind of either disinterested or um, suspicious about this whole operation and didn't necessarily spend a great deal of time reporting on it or promoting it or or anything uh, of that sort. It, it does seem that in, in soccer communities like, for instance, Pittsburgh, which I also talk about in the book, the press was really behind these leagues for whatever reason. Um, San Francisco was another place where for a certain amount of time, the, the call newspaper was really backing these leagues, publishing stories about players, getting involved in promoting the league. Um, and and so when that happened, soccer could develop an audience uh, and, and attract crowds. Um, but that didn't really happen for the American League of Professional Football and didn't really happen for the American Association of Professional Football. And, and I don't really know why that is the case. Maybe the baseball owners didn't have the pull. Maybe the, the press relationship with the baseball owners was more contentious and suspicious than um, in some of these uh, other soccer communities. But for whatever reason, the press was, I would maybe say, lukewarm about this whole uh, operation. All right. So why do you think that these two then leagues with a fledgling oversight uh, governing body behind uh, the scenes, why do you think it all just sort of abruptly just ended at the end of the, the one and only season of these two things. I mean, you're kind of describing perhaps, I mean, I, I, you would think that with two pro circuits and a, and a gov and a fledgling governing body sort of out there, uh, that, that, that there would be a year two, some kind of combination thereof. Maybe you put the teams together into a, a bigger or a stronger league. You would have learned some lessons, but no, it, it literally just disappeared and not only disappeared, but, just went away. The whole idea of a pro professional league on this kind of scale went away for decades. I mean, what spooked them so? And, and, and why do you think? I think it was a combination of factors. I, I think the, I think they were surprised by just how little 
um, interest there was based on attendance. I, I mean, they repeatedly said in the newspapers that they were prepared to lose money, that the first season was going to be uh, a, a challenge and, a, and, and the aim was really to try to build interest and to build an audience. So they weren't naive enough to think that they were going to be selling out um, the polo grounds or, or whatever, uh, you know, in the first season. So they were savvy enough to know that it was going to take some work. But I think they maybe were a little bit shocked at how much work it was going to take and how few tickets they were actually selling, um, especially compared to the crowds that were that were coming up in in England uh, and Scotland. Um, I also think that, and this is another way in which it kind of prefigures American soccer uh, throughout the, the 20th century, is that having these rival leagues and having the American Football Association be um, against, I mean, they ban professional players from competing in AFA-sanctioned matches. I think that, uh, you know, that infighting within the soccer community is a feature that will happen again and again and again. Um, you know, um, and so that doesn't contribute that, that they weren't willing to kind of pull together and, and merge the teams or figure out some compromise with the American football association. I mean, that was one of the reasons why the American soccer league ultimately fails is because they couldn't reach an agreement about the professional leagues playing in the cup competitions and how the gate receipts were going to be divided. And so that kind of infighting and, and, uh, and just squabbling within the soccer community, I think, contributed to the failure of these leagues. Um, and then uh, the announcement that there might be another baseball league, I think, was sort of like the the final straw that that you had all of these other factors, the infighting, the lack of crowds, the expenses, uh, the the prospect of a long, difficult challenge to make this league viable, the possibility that you might have to compete uh, with with teams or compete internationally for players, you know, as Baltimore had already brought over uh, professionals from from England, uh, was that were were they going to have to pay to bring people over from England and Scotland in, in future seasons? Uh, so I think it was a combination of all those things. But the the announcement that there was another potential rival baseball league uh, waiting to start, that was kind of like, that's it. I, th- I think they just, at least most of the owners, there were reports that some owners wanted to to carry on. Um, but that was the, they they needed to, to sort of gird themselves for another fight over baseball uh, and they just weren't willing to keep this uh, this soccer league going. And, and was that rumored new professional or, or at least direct competitor to the National League in baseball, was that what ultimately became the American League in 1901? I don't think so. I mean, the, the league in 1894 never came to fruition. I mean, maybe there were some people involved in the in what would eventually become the American League, but the league, as as it was talked about in September and October of 1894, never ultimately materialized. So in a sense, maybe if they had waited it out, that would have become clear. But I think that they were so angry uh, and so upset at the idea that, you know, just three years after they had finished off the 
the last rival leagues that there would be another rival league. I think that was just an, enough to tip the balance against the the soccer leagues. It, to me, that's fascinating. And obviously, hindsight's always you know proverbially twenty twenty, right? But I you'd think that with that much sort of heat, I guess, around it for for at least a, a hot year, uh, and then the dissipation, if you will, of the of of an actual league. Although it did, did you know, seven years later, the, the AL did sort of come into fruition. I, I'm sure there were some rumblings and, and some some formative talks and stuff that probably scared off people. But I just find it very, very intriguing that there really wasn't anything of true substance. I mean, short of other people finding some other discoveries that you and I both don't know, uh, you know, beyond regional and sort of industrial leagues, anything approaching anything of a, of a national quote-unquote, soccer or professional league in this country until the 1920s. Why do you think it then took so long, and why did it just sort of disappear out of whole cloth for such a period of time? You'd think that there would have been at least another attempt or two. Maybe there were. We just don't know about them, or they just didn't sort of stick as much. But it, it seems to me like there's a gap, a big gap, until really the 20s when the ASL came kind of started to coalesce. I think a big factor is that the soccer communities tend to be tended to be um, highly local, really, uh, and sometimes that might be a particular city, and sometimes it might be a particular region. Um, and there were, uh, I mean, we might call them semi-professional uh, leagues that would crop up before that. Um, for instance, in Fall River and in that area, there there do seem to be there does seem to be some evidence that that players were paid. Now, you know, they probably weren't quitting their day jobs and maybe they were paid a, a little bit or, or, you know, costs or something like that. So in that sense, semi-professional leagues would would continue to exist. But you're right. There was talk occasionally about a regional league. There was one around the turn of the 20th century that was supposed to feature teams from St. Louis and Chicago and you know, maybe Milwaukee and, and, and some of that area. But you're right, in terms of a national league, it really doesn't begin to take hold until the, until the ASL in, in 1921. Um, and I think part of that is that there is no, uh, you know, there isn't an organizing body. As you say, the AFA was still pretty regionalized and, and what's now U.S. soccer doesn't emerge until later. Um, and and so I think it was still maybe just two you know all of these scattered small communities uh, and and not anything kind of directly linking them all together until the the federation comes along and until um, right Thomas Cahill has this idea that now we need to to capitalize on the popularity of the sport especially following World War One and and strike while the iron is hot, hot, so to speak, and create a, a professional league. And, and by the time you get into 1920, 21, you do have soccer taking off all around the world. And so those immigrants who are coming from Spain or Italy or Germany or, uh, or Austria or uh, Hungary, I mean, they now have uh, the, the kind of a, a sense of soccer in the, in the way that you were talking about earlier. And so there is that audience or potential audience for professional soccer among these ethnic communities that maybe or almost certainly didn't exist in 1894. So I think it was a question of maybe having a slow buildup through the 19 teens and then after World War, during and after World War I, um, there was a real 
burst of interest and enthusiasm for the sport. And, and so then that's what led to the formation of the ASL in 1921. Well, that's another topic for another time, for sure. But let, let me ask you sort of this maybe sort of roundup question then. I mean, I, it, it, as an historian, somebody who has learned sort of this the earliest, if you will, sort of attempts of, of, at a, if you will, a national pro circuit or two uh, such, such a long time ago, do you see now that you, we've seen the sort of the other forms of, of the history of the sport sort of play out over the, the decades and centuries? Did you find any irony, like I have, say, in reading accounts of, say, the late 60s after the sort of in the wake of the 1966, you know, uh, first ever live U.S. televised World Cup final and all the enthusiasm of, I guess it was at the time, three professional groups trying to sort of create a league uh, or leagues uh, of pro sports, and a lot of them were baseball owners. Um, I just find that highly ironic and and arguably uh, almost ignorant, we're absolutely ignorant, of maybe some of the the learnings or, or uh, watchouts that maybe were you, we've just spent the last hour or so describing because I, I, I got the sense that, you know, people like um, uh, the guy who owned the Chicago White Sox at the time, uh, Alwyn, and, and, and some of these others, right, were kind of just seeing – easy money to be made uh, off the backs of their professional sort of uh, infrastructures with baseball. I, um, I, I, there's a question in there somewhere. I just, to me, it seems a little ironic and, and uh, uh, the proverbial, uh, those who uh, ignore history are, you know, doomed to something. Right. No, I, I, I think, I think you're right that, that there is, uh, I mean, it's definitely, you can see the same mistakes or the same challenges playing out uh, over the next uh, century, really, in terms of US professional soccer in the United States. Um, I think it may be, uh, you know, now that we know more about this history, uh, I think, you know, it, we can see the irony in a way that I'm not, I'm not sure that they could have known as much about the history as we do because of, you know, the fact that there are no, I mean, unlike, let's say, in, in England, for instance, or in other parts of the world where you have these clubs that have been around since the 1890s and they have archives, you know, some of them in better shape than others. Uh, you know, the Football League has been around since 1888. So there is this institutional history that exists and none of those clubs have survived and none of the ASL clubs survived. And as I, I've said, we don't have the institutional records. And so um, it was only really when we had widespread digitization of newspapers that we've been able to piece together the information that we have. So I think you're right, knowing what we know now, uh, it is ironic uh, and it is interesting in, in how much, despite the fact that it only lasted a few weeks, that the American League of Professional Football in particular uh, really uh, faced a lot of the same challenges uh, and made a lot of the same mistakes that that would then be repeated over and over and over again. And and so I think you're right. I can see the irony in, in that. Um, but there, I just don't think they could have known because almost no one um, knew about these leagues, even people who knew a great deal about the history of American soccer. Um, it was kind of this thing that that was out there that that people knew about, but the details were fuzzy. 
Yeah, I, I personally, I would love to be able to somehow um, convince Coax, uh, uh, whatever, uh, the, uh, the, the remaining uh, Major League Baseball teams that these uh, original uh, American League of Professional Football teams uh, you know, we're sort of rooted to because you wonder deep in the dark bowels of the uh, or the upper, uh, you know, uh, attics of these uh, historical records and stuff. There's got to be some even further information about sort of the, uh, you know, the either the correspondence or some of it. I'm sure you've done yeoman's like work trying to find it, but I wonder in the, uh, you know, in the dark crevices of say the Los Angeles Dodgers's uh, offices or. San Francisco Giants or the Atlanta Braves, right? These are all teams that, uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, trace direct lineage all the way back to this period in time in 1894. Um, I, I just, you just wonder if there's another piece or two of information that could maybe further solidify or give some senses to, you know, beyond what you've been able to sort of uncover here about that league and, and, and what else was going on in 1894. And it's from a different source, right? It's not from sort of the soccer uh, 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 history uh, realm, which is obviously relatively smaller by comparison. I mean, there's there's no more hyper investigated and historically researched sport in this country than baseball, for God's sakes, right? Uh, yeah. I just wonder if it's been glossed over or ignored or just forgotten or, or not seen because it wasn't about quote unquote baseball at the time. I, I think that, I mean, that's one of the challenges of doing sport history is that um, it was often seen either by people within the sporting community as not necessarily worth preserving those records. And it was seen by people in the archive and, and scholarly community as not important records to keep. And so I think there were very few people maybe who had the motivation or the interest necessarily in preserving a lot of those records. As, as I said, uh, from what I know about English soccer clubs, you know, some of whom date back, you know, more than 100 years, their archives are often in um, in rough shape as well. I mean, that's changed over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years where now some of the bigger clubs especially have archivists on staff and have museums. But if the English clubs that have been around and have existed don't necessarily keep the best archives or keep the best records, um you know, it's not surprising maybe that this league that lasted only a few weeks has has not preserved a lot of records. So, I mean, I as yeah, I would love it if there was something to be found uh, in the baseball records or um, that would be it would be great. And maybe um, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel bad at all if it if it challenged my conclusions and and made me look wrong. But uh, but it would just be really wonderful to have that other voice, as you said, or those other voices on this topic. Well, there it is, folks, a, a professional historian literally throwing out a challenge to uh, to people who uh, want to step up. I mean, look, I, to me, it feels like there's just as much Cooperstown uh, in some very, a lot of aspects of the story as there is in, where is it now, Frisco, Texas, where the National Soccer Hall of Fame is, right? So, um, and I, I have a feeling this won't be the last word, but let's give you some chance to promote. Th this is but one chapter from a really fascinating book that goes into lots of the early history. This is just sort of the 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 one and done year of professionalism in this period of time. Uh, tell us about uh, the book, where uh, where it can be found, how you're promoting it, and um, is this the last or just the beginning of, of a topic like this for you? 
Well, the book, as we said, is from football to soccer, um, and it's published by the University of Illinois Press. Uh, it's available at all fine bookstores uh, or online outlets, at least, or directly from the press. Um, I, it really is kind of an examination from the earliest kinds of uh, soccer-like sports uh, played by Native Americans. I start with the chapter on Native American football or kicking games. Um, and then kind of talk about the way the sport developed uh, until we get to uh, the codification of, of association football or soccer in 1863. And, and I wanted to look at maybe some things that hadn't been really uh, examined in that in detail, like the Native American games, like some of these schoolboy games that we talked about at, at the colleges. Um, I have a couple of chapters on women playing soccer a subject that hasn't really been um, dealt with, at least in that early period, uh, too, too much. I mean, there are some important uh, works on on early U.S. women's soccer, but I kind of wanted to add and amplify um, that. Um, and then I tried to take a couple of different case studies and look at how those illustrate certain themes that were played out in different communities around the country. So there's a chapter on Pittsburgh uh, soccer, where kind of illustrating the sort of ups and downs of the leagues and competitions there and some of the challenges that they faced in terms of um, infighting and squabbling and finding places to play and um, and how it kind of grew to be, uh, you know, in the early part of the 20th century in this major sport in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, I look at Western Massachusetts as well to sort of talk about the importance of industrial teams uh, and industrial firms sponsoring soccer clubs in cities and communities around the country. Um, I look at the effect of World War One that really um, the more American uh, men were exposed to soccer in terms of playing and watching the sport during World War One than maybe. Uh, any other time in in the country's history, uh, you know the the um, U.S. soccer and the YMCA spent uh, in today's dollars millions of dollars to to send soccer balls to Europe for soldiers. So um, so that had a big impact on on growing the game. Um, and like I said, I kind of stop in 1920 with the beginning of the ASL because, as you said, that's kind of another another topic for another day. Yeah, well, which definitely, I think, still has many, many other sort of uh, uh, storylines to be further unearthed. You mentioned a few authors that have uh, certainly delved into that. But, uh, I, you know, um, this is a, a, a tremendous table set for that because the ASL just didn't pop out of nowhere either. And this is arguably uh, an excellent uh, way to sort of get a sense of as to how and why an American soccer league kind of evolved in the 1920s and and from there on arguably uh you know greater things supposedly for soccer in this country i don't know some i've been such a fan of the sport since i since i sort of got inoculated to it uh, in i don't know the mid to late 1970s but just you know you go back in time it to me it's just fascinating to know that and ironic to hear, right? You know, people still call the sport on the professional level still somewhat fledgling, right? That there are the the naysayers of MLS and and you know the Euro snobs, and it's not really you know blah blah blah. But it's like you know it'll be the sport of the future. It's always and it always has been for for how many <laughs> decades and centuries, right? But you know it, it's it the the history is very long and very deep, uh, and the, the, the kudos to you for sort of 
uh, amplifying that and solidifying it. And um, God forbid more uh, can get added to uh, uh, the infrastructure that you've uh, created here because it, it clearly existed a long time ago and earlier than most people, I think, would uh, have earlier known or admitted. I think that's, I mean, one of the thing I hope that the book does is, is it does, you know, show that, that the United States has this really long and rich history and that in some ways, uh, I mean, this, these professional leagues we've been talking about were the oldest professional leagues or the first professional leagues outside of the British Isles. So, uh, I mean, before, you know, Brazil, before Spain, before uh, Italy, those sorts of places had professional soccer leagues. The United States had had two. Uh, I mean, granted, as we talked about, they were not uh, exactly successful. But just to get that out there that, you know, as you said, soccer didn't begin in 1994 and it didn't begin with Pele and it, and it has these deep roots, even if they've been obscured or or forgotten about or uh, and it would be great to to just make that that understanding of that history uh, a, a maybe a bit broader uh, and knowledge of that history a bit broader and maybe get people interested in in learning more about about that history and and especially history in different communities. I think, as I said before, these communities are are oftentimes small, um, but almost in you know, in most major cities, uh, you probably could find in, in beginning in the late 19th century and into the 20th century, some um, soccer communities, um, even in places that we might not think of, like uh, like Georgia. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Patrick Sullivan, has done research on early history, soccer history in Georgia, um, you know, places like Colorado or, or Minnesota or um San Francisco, Hawaii, for instance. So um, there's a lot of this history out there that um, I think would be of great interest to people. And I hope this is a first step in kind of that process, I guess, bringing that out. Brian Bunk is a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, uh, which just so happens to house a wonderful uh, assortment and uh, assemblage of uh, research uh, for any sports history uh, uh, enthusiast uh, or professional. It's called the McCormick Collection, uh, and it's even made more uh, interesting by the inclusion of an episode of this here little podcast. Yes, courtesy of our pal Upton Bell and our great conversation that we had with him a few years back, talking about lots of things like the World Football League, for example, uh, which now resides, uh, courtesy of uh, Mr. Bell, thank you, kind sir, uh, in the McCormick Collection. So as you're uh, you know, uh, going out there to do some research or whatever, uh, feel free to enjoy that episode and uh, perhaps a few others maybe to uh, to be contributed. Maybe this one, for God's sakes. But but who knows? But uh, it's it's nice to know that uh, at least a few people out there uh, find some value in what we do and want to commemorate it and keep it around so people can discover it, maybe learn from it or, you know, put it into their works as they're uh, uh, feverishly going for their PhDs and, and whatnot. We, uh, we appreciate that for sure. The book, however... Uh, in the interim, uh, by Dr. Brian Bunk is From Football to Soccer, the Early History of the Beautiful Game in the United States. It is published by the 
University of Illinois Press. Go Illini. Uh, and again, chapter five uh, is the, uh, the, the chapter that you want to highlight because that's the in-depth story of what we kind of just danced around uh, in our conversation um, of these, yes, two, actually, uh, which we didn't know uh, going into this conversation, two professional soccer leagues in 1894, the American League of Professional Football and the American Association uh, of Professional Football with the baseball owners in the uh, background putting it all together. Fascinating stuff. Brian, let's see, can also be found uh, on Twitter at Soccer History US and uh, on the web at SoccerHistoryUSA.org. And uh, interestingly, among other things, on you, uh, SoccerHistoryUSA.org, you will find, believe it or not, an in-depth and uh, only of its kind uh, player database of all of the players uh, that he has discovered in his research that played in both of these 1894 professional leagues. So talk about a genealogy project. It's, it's there among many other cool things. And again, uh, that website is SoccerHistoryUSA.org. All right, our website, while you're uh, firing up your browser or your mobile device, is, of course, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where we store all of our episodes, in case you happen to miss a few, uh, or you want to point people to, uh, you know, a little sampling, if you will, so that they can subscribe or, or follow in their various podcast feeds. We post every episode up there. That's always your backstop in case you miss them or there's some kind of uh, blow up of your phone and you, and you miss out. Uh, and um, you can stream them, you can share them. And we, of course, put a little um, little slideshow of, of, of relevant photos uh, and uh, links to the various books and stuff. Um, that's all the sort of convenient place. So if, if everything just goes to hell in a handbasket, just remember the website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's your locus for everything about this show. And, you know, there's a lot more to come. Um, it's just, you know, this is still a labor of love four plus years into it. Uh, but there's lots of other things we want to sort of add into that. So keep checking, will you, uh, on the site for more good stuff. And we'll certainly let you know. But uh, our web uh, uh, site is certainly uh, there. You can uh, send us email if you'd like. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Facebook. We're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available as well. Uh, and on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. And uh, last but not least, while you're on the website, find just tool around there and find the, I forget what button it's on. I'm sorry. It's I just, I, it's already out of my mind, um, is the uh, email newsletter, the email newsletter, he's trying to say, uh, that we send out each and every week uh, over the weekend, usually to kind of give you a hint, a little taste of what uh, this, uh, the coming week's episode uh, is all about and going to be. So uh, get into that list too. You'll be in the in crowd uh, for sure. And, uh, of course, we bow our, um, uh, I don't know, how about our Brooklyn Bridegroom's cap uh, in the uh, general direction of the great Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Thank you, kind sir, as always. And thank you, the great listeners. Thank you for all your input, your cards and letters and emails and social media tweets. And, yeah, even you, Johnny Knucklehead. Uh, we love your uh, attention to the show, and uh, we appreciate uh, your commentary uh, wherever it may come from. Uh, until next week, we'll see you. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>